not spit, it's condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, we're bringing you part two of the interview I did with Carlos Izcaray, music director of the Alabama Symphony Orchestra. This episode started off with us talking about how he was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma and kind of how he dealt with that, what it was like to go through treatment and be a music director, and then ultimately how he uh, became in remission. Uh, I lost about 15 minutes of this episode somehow, and so all we missed was us talking about how he did get it or he was diagnosed with it. And he talked about one day he just felt a lump when he was in the bathroom and was thinking to himself, that's weird. He got it checked out. He said it was December 14th, 2016, and he had to wait till January of 2017 to find out it was officially cancer. He had his treatments uh, every other week, and we pick up right around the time that he said that he found out about it. So I don't know why I lost this, but it didn't miss much other than to say the introduction and uh, talking about how he got cancer. So we'll pick it up here. I hope you enjoy the episode. So um, in the middle between those weeks, I did get eventually got got the um, diagnosis. You know, the my doctor called me in. I remember it was a Tuesday and he said, you need to come in. I want you in right right now. And when they tell you right now you need to come in and they make time for you, you know, yeah, <laughs> they, they move good. things around it's... and I kind of knew yeah. uh what was happening, what was coming. They've already even the the urgent care doctor that first saw me said, you know, this is a kind of a sign of a possible lymphoma. It, it was it was basically really about knowing which kind of lymphoma it was, the non Hodgkin's, the Hodgkin's. Lymphoma. So anyways, Fast forward, and then by then I knew somewhere in between those two. I think by the time we were playing the cold plan, I already knew. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or if not, it was early the next week. Um, I'd been in touch with the orchestral committee and the administration, but also with with the musicians committee just to just I felt it was a courtesy thing. Hey, you know, if I need to step away from the rest of the season you'll know what it'll be or if right. i mean whatever needs to happen yeah, I, right. until then i had no idea what was coming up but um i knew that until they told until the doctors that's sort of my nature anyways until the doctors tell me you need to okay like you can't go out of the house you know if they don't tell me that and i'll go out of the house <laughs> you know, yeah right you'll be and, just and i'll keep th- working yeah, no matter right. what yeah so um so uh, okay, so you, they told me you have Hodgkin's lymphoma. Obviously, that's super scary. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, now with the internet, you, you know, one, you know, they tell you you might have that immediately. You're researching, it. right? At least yeah, that's me, anyways. Um, I wonder what it's like for doctors at this point, where patients can get so much information. That, yeah, the, but, uh, well, I, I <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of an expert on that part too now, because doctors now tell, hey, hold on with the internet careful i mean you can read all these th- things and uh, you know uh, a lot of it is true but careful i mean yeah <laughs> make sure that you follow our, our advice please i mean anyways but so i knew then what i had in a sort of strange way i um 
was happy, you know, within the circumstances that that it was Hodgkin's lymphoma because it's considered one of the most treatable um, diseases, uh, you know, of this kind. So it's all right. I, I had a feeling that you know, if I just stick with it, do my treatment. We Did they give okay. you like a percentage of? Yeah, it's like it's like a eighty plus percent. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, for those who have, e- even those who have a more advanced case, they, 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 it's still above fifty percent. Okay, and then those wow. are, and mine was caught um, early enough that you know it was like stage two something, it's two A. So it's one of the earlier stages. So I I um I felt confident that that we managed through this. It's just, it was just going to be a bumpy ride. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. That's. I was at the time, not too long before that, I was watching this series uh, with my wife. And we we would watch the series Dexter. Remember Dexter? Oh, yeah. The serial killer one. Well, yeah, yeah. And that's when I found out that the actor from that series had had, had gone through Hodgkin's uh, lymphoma. Oh, that's right. I've read of, that. Yeah. Sort of when you, when you search for the for the disease somewhere, you know, in one of those you find links, Dexter. you find him. Hey, wait, Michael Dexter. Hall, oh, yeah. he had it. Oh, okay. That explains why. Um, for the award ceremony, he was, uh, you know, bald at that, but I didn't know what he had, but now I knew anyway. So you kind of find out about other people that have gone through it and you feel, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just gonna stick to my, uh, to my, to my guns here. I'm going to keep with my, my season, my family. And, uh, you know, obviously I'm thinking also about, you know, my family, my kids, you sure. know, I mean, some, I mean, my, my boy was only a, a year old when this was happening, you know? Um, well, anyway, they give you like a time frame for well, this length of time is how long yeah. you could expect it so to be. I, I immediately, I mean, once I was diagnosed, I was my, uh, primary care doctor, um, recommended a, an oncologist at UAB who worked with me, and you know, then they, I was told that you know it'd be between four or six months of 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 of, of chemotherapy, and, okay. you know, and it's a uh, and that's what we did. We I started. I mean, I started chemotherapy shortly after this uh, American festival that we had, and shortly after that, we had the Sound Edge Festival, which was another one of my babies that I had you know, create, I mean, this didn't exist. So I wanted to, to launch it. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I looked at when I had to get my chemo sessions and at the same time compared it to my performance schedule, I was looking and there were, there were two things, almost, only two programs that I felt, okay, that one and this one I'm going to have to pull out of. I mean, it's just from, because it's, it was too close to the, to the day of the treatment, and I just wanted to, um, you know, be responsible with did myself tr- and with the orchestra too. Did they try to work the treatment around your schedule, or yes. were they like, "This is the day"? And- yes, no, they were very, they were very um, accommodating, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to the degree that they could sure, uh, sure. accommodate. But they were quite flexible with me. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's I got to. This was interesting because I many of the nurses that would eventually treat me, you know, and help me out. You know, that you you start to to get to know them personally. Right. Yeah. You know, like three of my of the nurses that I worked with, I mean, they were concert goers, and they started to go more. You know, so you you build 
I'm always trying to get people to yeah, go to right. concerts. Even if, even if I'll I'm, go even, that far. Even get... if I'm getting chemo, man, I'm, <laughs> I'm advocating for what we do. Yeah. Um, uh, but beautiful. I mean, that this is, uh, in a way, this was also a blessing because I got to see the best side of our community. I got to see the best side of what an orchestra is, too. I mean, this is a point where the whole board of directors, you know, they came uh, and they, they were super supportive, the staff, but more importantly, uh, the musicians of the orchestra. Um, I remember... Uh, Early, I mean, it was just when I started my treatment that uh, um, Lisa, our principal, uh, flutist, and others in the orchestra got, I don't know, they formed some kind of a internal committee and started bringing food. I think Lisa to just me. sent out a message and said, We're, we would like to take Carlos food. We're going to take food. Yeah. And then I you know every Monday I was receiving food from the musician. I mean, this was very moving. Uh, it was nurturing, not just at, a, at the you know, uh, physically, but also, sure. I mean, as a, uh, for the soul, it was, it was, yeah. it was, it was very moving. Um, and, uh, so all well, I started my chemotherapy in the middle of the season and, you know, we, I, like I said, I canceled a couple of things also, especially early on, cause I wanted to see how I was going to react. Um, I have some experience with cancer. My mom went through breast cancer. Uh, this would, would have been 22 years ago um, while I was in, in college. And I, so I had some notion of what it was going to be like. Um, my memories of those times were quite horrible because the treatments were much harsher. It was yeah. sort of like everybody got the same treatment. And, but now things have changed. Uh, you know, they've, they've improved the 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 treatments themselves so they're much more manageable so as soon as i started well, obviously yes i did feel strange i mean you, it's like a it's like a couple of <laughs> a couple of levels above a, a a bad hangover like the like the <laughs> day after you know and then, yeah, but, yeah. but but it, i don't know the the way that um that it went with me i always felt like it was treatment then it's going to be two really bad days uh and then then all of a sudden you start to get better and how many uh, this is something i, had I understand eight, there's chemo but how often were the treatments i was going every two weeks okay my for my treatment it was every two weeks and uh and i did it for four months you can do it four to six months depending so my doctors thought that with four it would be enough and it was basically when i started it was the rest of the season it was, I was going to be in chemo until until the end of the season, literally. <laughs> um, and that's what happened. Now, I had to also make a decision and also inform the same thing that was happening with, with you guys here and with the ASO. I was, you know, with the American Youth Symphony on my first season with them. Right, yeah. So I had just done one concert with them, the season opener, uh, and then I was going to come back for, um, you know, spring performances so this was after I was diagnosed, and here I'm like, I mean, I'm, I'm like, okay, this is this, okay, I guess this will be it for for this job, you know. But they were also incredibly supportive, hmm. and in California, and uh, so we were able to make it work. I I did some crazy things once I was in treatment, uh, but I consulted with my doctors because my doctor said, look, if you feel like like you want to keep working and you feel like you can keep working, then we recommend that you keep working. Because that's what's good for you. 
Sure. And I, I completely agree with that. I mean, many people, you know, in now in hindsight, now that thinking about that process that I went through, say, well, you were conducting, and I said, those were the best weeks. My favorite weeks during this whole ordeal were the ones where I was really busy and active, and still feel like you're living. You know, not like. Surviving, sure. Where you feel sure. like you're, you know, I'm just with this condition and doing, doing what I have to do. But at the same time, I was uh, very active, studying my scores, you know, and do, be doing what a music director does. One thing that I really liked, and I I appreciated, and I am eternally thankful for, um, from you know, for the orchestra. It's it's the the fact that the edge, that's that intensity that is always there in like in, in our rehearsals at least where you know it's a we want to be super efficient and get it done and sound right etc none of that got diminished and i appreciated that what i mean by that is like if there had to be a tough question or something to be said in the rehearsals uh, nobody hesitated with that yeah. so i was still being Thrown the tough questions, or what are we going to do here? Or we're confused, you know. So it was like business as usual. Sure, sure, almost as if. And I, I, the fact that I was being challenged to to answer those questions, you know, in the same matter that we would have in any normal circumstances, to me was a blessing. Yeah, because the last thing that I wanted to feel was like, oh, poor little Carlos. Maybe we should. I I wanted for us to, you know, keep at it. Yeah, at, at the top pro level and. Yeah. So that was for me it was uh, uh, something that I was I don't know it's, it's a masochistic thing but I just wanted for us to be working as hard as if nothing is happening. Mm-hmm. Obviously something was happening but we were um working as close as possible to the business as usual. Well and I I I find it pretty interesting. I remember you saying I think you said at one point that that same sentiment you just said which is being able to make music has been Kind of a lifesaver it's in a, a way. Total and yeah, I just wonder how has maybe your perspective of approaching music, like basically how many things in terms of your perspective, whether it's career, family, just life in general, how much has changed? What do you sort of, what are your priorities? And have your priorities changed? And not that anything is still not a priority, but has this like shifted how you think about things? Because I imagine to a certain extent it, it has, but I'm just curious if. Uh, if you're, yeah, if you can articulate that. So, the purest motivations and sentiments and impulses that one feels when one is a young musician deciding that this is what I want to do um, as a career, as a life path. That's what really a music a musician's career is really a life path. It's something you choose, or hopefully that you choose out of passion because it's very very challenging can be frustrating and it's a long road. So, but I would say those sentiments that one feels at that moment when one is sort of deciding, okay, I want to be a musician because I just can't do without this. That part was reinforced to the nth degree. Um, as, as I mean, the, the, it, it was um, on one end... Uh, cathartic it was on one end uh just uh, a great blessing really to be able to be making music through this whole thing um at the same time 
there is, for example, as a conductor, there's some repertoire that I've been sort of postponing. I've been, you know, sort of putting it aside, always feeling that, okay, maybe I'm not ready yet for this. I'm not ready yet for this. I mean, like, like a Bruckner repertoire. There are certain things that I felt, I'm just going to wait a little bit for that, just to feel a little grayer, a little, little wiser. Um, I think, I mean, if there's a theme, a piece that has to do in, about, in, to some degree about mortality, etc. I mean, there are certain works that I was just putting aside, postponing for the right moment to come. Going through chemo and being told, you know, that, uh, it, it's I mean, when you when you're being when you're told your cancer is this, it's a very stark reminder of your mortality. Oh, sure, can, yeah. yeah. It's also, I mean, like, as I said, I had three kids right there who were very young, very dependent on the parents, you know, and what I'm doing. So that sense of purpose, a lot, everything got maximized. And some things were moved forward in the sense, I feel that some of this musical wisdom that you hope that you get by a certain time, I think... Um, I'm ready to now tackle some of these works yeah, more than yeah. anybody because it's just something that I don't know how to describe it. It's just an internal, an internal thing. You definitely discard a lot of the unnecessary elements in life. I mean, things that I might have been worried about before, I wasn't going to be worried about ever again because you know you're you're by now you're. I, I feel that since that moment, going through the chemo, I'm on borrowed time now. In another era, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here anymore. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So when you feel that now you're on borrowed time, it's like, okay, I'm not going to waste one more second. I'm definitely not going to waste it on doing this or that or spending time with this person or that person. So that changes. Yes, that does change um, how it, it improves it, or at least there's an there's an evolving process. Uh, with regards to the musicianship and just uh, I think I simplified a number of things of what I do um, I I pay less attention to certain more mundane elements or more the more superficial parts of what what we do and and just trying to stay with that sort of purest element and yeah. that, that thing I did I, I do think that it got um, enhanced. On the other hand, also, I mean, my relationship with you guys as an orchestra, I mean, it's obviously spending more time with an orchestra. You, you come closer, you get to know it better, you start to see the strengths and the tendencies, etc. That also got maximized. Um, so uh, that's more or less the change i mean from there i mean everything else is sort of the same uh the well, processes but i but it is uh i would say i worry less about those things that one should not be worrying about yeah and so i feel cancer is a rather extreme uh sort of life circumstance to have to have these sort of realizations right so in a way i'm not going to say you're probably glad that cancer came your way but some of the things that you feel like you may have learned from it in terms of life now you're on borrowed time maybe you're more efficient able to focus on the things that matter maybe there's sort of a positive spin do you feel like you wished that you may had learned that sooner or anything like that maybe not through cancer you know what i mean if you yeah. had the opportunity to learn yeah. some of the stuff without 
cancer? Is that something you wish you had sooner than you do? Or is it just kind of like you're okay with the way things turned out? I think, uh, I mean, I, I think we all have a side that, that once you learn something, you, you might go immediately to, I wish I had known that back then. You know, right, there, there sure. Is, so I think everything that I've learned in the, you know, the, the recent times i i do wish i had learned it just a little yeah, bit okay. earlier you know it's that yeah. eternal thing oh if i knew now that i'm 40 something you know what i know now when i was 20 things would be so different <laughs> yeah. there's some degree of that true yeah, yeah but at the same time that's how it um i one of the things that i've had to learn um with with what i've gone through and also you know with there's also my wife i mean it's not my my thing could have stopped there but it didn't it sure. continued yeah um, it's, uh, so the, the, there is a point where you just have the, one adjustment was basically, this is, this is the hand that I was given. This, this is it. I mean, I have no control over that part and I will not have any control over that. Um, I think we all have certain things that one can, you know, that, that are malleable, that are influenced, uh, one can influence, but there are others that that's just it. I mean, Call it destiny. Call it whatever you want. That's what. That's the part that I'm. That's the what I discarded. Is is going through much through that process of figuring that out. It's just. It, it is what it is. Sure. And now I have to I either become uh, petrified or or you know and stuck or I just move forward. So I decided yeah. for the latter. Well, it's interesting to me too. In the previous interview we had, you, you sort of said similar sentiments about uh, the you know the human vi- rights violations you had gone through. That it's a part; it will always be a part of you in your past. But you clearly, I don't even think about that when I think about you. I, I know that's a thing, but I don't associate with that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and so that you've sort of said this is a thing that happened. That's the hand I was dealt. I'm going to move forward. And now you've it's basically showing that that seems to be the kind of mentality you hold as a as sort of a human being that it's it's yeah. another stripe for the tiger as we say in in Spanish. Um, it's just and you're wearing a tiger shirt. That's I'm right, just yeah. looking at that now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's that. ironic. How yeah. funny. But uh it that, that is what it is. And in my case, yes, I got you know, diagnosed, I went through chemo, but as, as you know, it didn't end there. When I was, when I was about to finish, it was the, the week before my very last treatment. Um, I was, I remember it was a, a second story, the second floor of, of UAB. And I, you know, I was told everything is going fine. Your tests are coming wonderful. You have only one more session and then you'll be done. And then from that, I mean, that would be celebratory, right? Yeah, absolutely. But I had to go immediately from that appointment up one floor to where my wife was being treated. I mean, she was being uh, looked at herself because she has she had she was going through some uh, you know, health. Uh, you know, so something wasn't right. She was having all these weird symptoms, and that's when she got diagnosed with cancer herself. <laughs> Uh, this I was, remember when I found that out. I was like, "It's like kind of inconceivable." It's, it's it's completely inconceivable. This yeah. is one of those freak cases. I mean, that's it, in that, like I said, that's the the hand that I was given. You know, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and uh, it was a, a very macabre kind of relay because I'm done. You want to celebrate it, but all of a sudden, oh, hold on, you know, my wife too. It's not it's, over, yeah. It was it's it's it's, yeah. it's not over and it won't be over because her thing was more complex than mine. Um, 
fortunately, one of the blessings of being here in Birmingham, UAB, and, you know, there's all this research, a lot of the new treatments are being created here or are being tested here. And then she was um, signed up for one of those. So she started her treatment when I was finishing mine. It's, uh, I mean, I have a couple of photos just uh, that i took as a reminder like we both had like the chemo ports you know the, the yeah. it was i mean it's was, it was very strange i know for people yeah it's just a hard thing to to swallow and it certainly was for us then but i mean this is something that has brought us to together even more than anything you yeah know, i mean that's like i can't really imagine yeah. you know what that kind of um extreme circumstance would do for yeah. your you know your bonding and yeah both of you i would say um you know i I've finally had an opportunity uh, at Teo's, or no, it was Natalie's birthday party. Mm-hmm. I think I finally had an opportunity to to, to speak with Yolanda and actually have like you know, a conversation with her. And um, I've both of you. It just I don't think of you as victims of yeah. this horrible thing. And it's just yeah, it's it's inspiring in that way to me. Mm-hmm. You know, especially her that she's still she's going through it currently. But you would really have no idea if you just met her you have no idea that she's currently dealing with an intense you know uh aggressive disease you know and i just think it's inspiring and i appreciate you being willing to yeah you know speak openly about it because there's you know people are going through circumstances all the time you know and to not be a victim of your own circumstances but to sort of take your own life in your own hands and say this like you said this is the hand of been dealt what am I going to do with that? How yeah. am I still going to make, you know, make things meaningful uh, is inspiring for me and, and good perspective as well. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, it's, um, um, you know, now that she's going through that, uh, she, she, she's inspiring to me too. I mean, this is, um, um, it, it, I definitely feels like, boy, did I choose the, the right girl or more. I, I should, I should probably say, boy, am I lucky that the right girl picked me. That's right, yeah. Um, Because it's, you know, she was so supportive during my ordeal, and now she's, you know, a total warrior, and, and, you know, she comes to all the performances, and her thing is every week, her treatment. So it's people, I mean, there's some serious uh, uh, logistics here that we have to play, but nonetheless, you know, like I say, you have to make it work. And when you have kids, you don't have that much option. I mean, it's just sort of, Let's go. Yeah, you know, right. And it's, uh, so anyways, that was, um, and some people don't know that later on that year, my dad got diagnosed with prostate cancer in Venezuela and had to be treated for that there, surgery, and then we were trying to, you know, Gosh. get the funds there so that, I mean, it was, it was, uh, yeah. Um, well, I guess that's as good of a segue as any, yeah, to talk about some of the difficulties that that probably, you know. Um, with what's going on in Venezuela right now. Um, That's the other thing, yeah. So uh, I spoke with Carlos before this and kind of telling him my plan, and I guess we'll move from one very dark subject matter to um, probably equally, maybe more so the darkest of subjects right now is uh, just what's happening in Venezuela. It's something that I think we as Americans know that there's something happening but, uh, you know, I think the news is tight. What I read is the news is pretty tightly controlled what leaves Venezuela. So we're not seeing everything that's happening. And um, I just thought it would be very important for you to be able to speak because obviously being from Venezuela, I've mm-hmm. seen your live videos, uh, your tweeting, your tons of articles posting about it. And um, almost not even from this, what I like about it is it's not even from seemingly from this perspective of, 
I mean, obviously there's a right and a wrong that you're presenting, but you're almost more presenting, I just want people to know what's happening. Yes. It's not even like a uh, inciting of no. anything. You're just, this is what's happening, you should know. So here's another platform that we can hopefully reach some more people if you kind of want to, we could give the va- the background of how, you know, the the presidential conflict exists if you'd like, but then just kind of painting a picture I think would be the most effective thing of like what it looks like right now uh, in Venezuela. Well, what is happening now is the it's it's um it's it's an unfolding of something that's been brewing now for for at least two decades. Um, uh, Hugo Chavez was elected as president in 1998, Venezuela, and very early on he started to show authoritarian tendencies, but with the high oil prices and all that, they were still it was sort of easy, manageable for the regime to keep a good face with regards to the international community. It was early early enough in, into his tenure, uh, a good number of Venezuelans that had supported him early on uh, understood or realized that, that this was not what they had signed up for. Um, you know my story from 2004 when the National Guard... That uh, you know, detained me, tortured me, all that. So I knew very early on Something that this was, yeah, was this that, that, that this was a dictatorial regime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're about to become a full-on dictatorship. Fast forward um, and to to what's going on now, and it's the unfolding of that. Chavez died, and he basically handed the torch to Maduro. There's the there's even a video of this where he says, "This is the guy. You know, if I if something happens to me, you have to pick this guy." Um, there was already discontent with Chavez, and um, I'm of the um, group that believes that the 2013 elections were stolen by Maduro. So he's, I think he's illegitimate from then. But let's say he's not. What happened is that uh, with the basically the collapse of all of institutions in Venezuela since the end of Chavez, and then what now with Maduro. You have, um, it's it, it, it's hard to describe it. Imagine a country where every single institution, everything that holds together a society starts to crumble and collapses. So we're talking about the power grid. We're talking about health services. We're talking about uh, basic security. We're talking about f- basic freedoms press, everything, anything that you want, name it. In Venezuela, it's not that it's going bad. It's that it's going worse than anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There are only about three, four focal points in the world that are as dark as Venezuela. You know, there's like Syria. You've described it as like an actual dystopian. It's a dystopian. You watch Mad Max? Yeah. What's happening in Mad Max? Uh, What's happening if you have all these crazy um, warlords and, you know, there's... uh, uh, you know, the, the human trafficking and everybody fighting for basic things like water. Yeah. That is what's happening now in Venezuela. I mean, people are going several days without any power, without any water. They're having to drink. I mean, they're, they're having to get the water from the sewers, boil it and hope that you don't get anything. That's, that's your way to hydration. Yeah. Glenn told me, um, Leo, 
is is uh, he said so he Leo is in Venezuela right now for yep. anybody who who yep. and, and so Glenn is our librarian who is here now but is still in contact. We were talking to him about it. We saw him last week, and he just said something like, "Yeah, I think Leo might have power for like three hours today, or something mm-hmm. like that." You know, and like that's just a sentence that he says casually, but we're like. You know, if we don't have power, like the lightning strikes or something, or like we have a power generator go out, we don't have power for, you know, 15 minutes. Everyone's like getting on their like phones and stuff like typing. And why don't I have power? Because it's like the second we don't have this thing, we're like, whoa, I can't I can't live my life. But that's it's, it's like not even that they don't have it. It's like have it for three hours. And now that's my reality. And. To, I can't even really fathom that, yeah. you know, it's... Well, like I say, it's a total collapse. And uh, this is something that's been happening for years and years and years and years. And uh, I've been denouncing it, obviously, from, from a human rights perspective for, for quite a... You know, for, for several years now. But now the other parts of it, the, the health part, the, just the infrastructure of a country... That I mean, this is basically completely collapsed, and this is now <laughs> people are starting to come to the realization worldwide that that the Chavista regime is nothing else but a crime syndicate that took over our government and looted a country and enslaved its population to stay in power. They did this with um, a combination of, on one end, support. Um, from 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 very bad actors like like the Cuban dictatorship and you know other countries worldwide, the ones that remain supporting the the Maduro regime are Russia, Turkey, like China, uh, right? China, yeah. Uh, some of them for different reasons. Some of them have just sort of business interests because they've invested there. Others are. Um, mostly trying to play in an antagonistic role against the influences of the United States, you know, so there's, there's like geopolitics at work. There's also the oil part there. I mean, there's many, many elements. What I'm always trying to do when I do my postings, et cetera, et cetera, is to remind people or to encourage people to not oversimplify things because it's very very common now for people to go oh that's the typical just another oil thing or another public dictator well and if I, uh, uh, hold on hold on things on the surface many times can look the same or similar to something but you will never get the the right picture of, of a situation unless you speak with the people that are involved in this case right. being Venezuelans. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I, I spoke to that, I think, um, well, many, many times yeah. in the, over the last, um, couple of months because of now we have a sort of unfolding. There's a new, I mean, it, it's gone to, a, to the next level now that you have, uh, um, what, what people don't understand is that so Maduro was, let's say elected and let's call those elections. They, those were recognized by the international community. So I'll, I'll leave that. What happened now is that from 2015, when the new National Assembly was selected, and it was a win for the opposition, where the people finally showed overwhelmingly that they're against the, the whole Chavista project or, or, or they wanting a change. So the 
opposition won the assembly. And from then we've had a serious, I mean, I don't want to get too much into it because that would take a long time, but basically <laughs> you have a constitutional crisis. Maduro forced an election um, last year. Basically, he jailed or banned an, uh, all the key players of the opposition who would have run for a presidential bid. Um, so he either jailed them or or um, banned them from running for election. And then he moved the election several months earlier and announced it only a month before it happened. So basically it was a sham election. Seems a little sneaky. <laughs> Completely sneaky and then they the, the, you know the the final results were so ridiculous that uh even the company that that um creates the 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 voting machines mm-hmm. the the CEO of that company said those results were tampered. Um the international community didn't recognize it. The opposition didn't participate. So Basically, that was as much of a sham election as as it can be. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I can't get any more. <laughs> so nobody recognized it, except for these countries that I mentioned: Cuba, Russia, China, Turkey, and you know, there's some other nations here and there. But it's it's a handful. Yeah, yeah. So what happened now is that this year, 2018, um, there was there, there was a very important. Um, transition there when the when the previous term expires and we have a void in, in 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 power there's a constitutional crisis and that's why the president of this assembly that was elected in 2015 who is Guaido that mm-hmm. you've probably read and seen that name yep, yep. around he's like the equivalent of uh, Nancy Pelosi okay right sort of the head of that we only have one chamber but he's the person who was in it's a rotating um presidency of the national assembly and there was this was his turn and his party and so maduro's term runs out and then he's the one really that earlier this year uh you know basically self-appointed himself he he appointed himself as the re-elected president that nobody had re-elected and that's when Guaido said, "No, there's a void in constitu- there's a void in the executive, and by the Venezuelan constitution that the Chavistas wrote, by the way, yeah. in 1999, uh, it says there, Article 233, that when there's a void in the executive, the president of the National Assembly takes over on an interim capacity. So then he until, declared yeah. until they can uh, reinstitute the constitutional order and call for free, fair elections. That's what's being that's what's happening now." So there's I mean, technically sort of like two pre- two recognized presidents by different people. Then, well, like one I would group frame supports- it. I would frame it differently. I would say there's a regime, and then there's a constitutional president. Okay. Obviously, um, I could see someone who doesn't know too much. Well, you're obviously biased. Well, yes, I'm biased towards democracy. Sure. I mean, sure. Just, uh, and, and in that regard, that's what's happening now. Um, let's see, because it's I want to be precise in. Who is recognizing what? So on one end, you have these five countries or six or seven that that I'm talking about that recognize Maduro as the president. So we're talking Putin, Russia, China, Turkey, Bolivia, um, uh, Cuba, and there's some uh, a couple of African nations here and there. You know, but that's it. 
On the other hand, you have Canada, United States, uh, the, you know, the, the vast, vast majority of the new world countries. Right. All, you know, all of them. You know, then you have Europe. You, I mean, you have 60 plus countries that are. The overwhelming that are, majority. That, that are yeah. saying that, that, that are basically saying to different degrees that Guaido is the. It's the the interim president. They're recognizing him as the as the official uh, representative of the Venezuelan people. Um, and what people are wanting is that that free, fair elections take place. That's what everybody wants. That's what we want. That's yeah. what they want. Right. And uh, the I guess the only thing now the real discussion is how does that happen? That's on one end. That's the institutional part, which is crucial. But there's another thing that is happening, and, that, and this is the one that is the the most immediate, really, is the fact that it's not just that there's a constitutional void, it's that it's been 20 years. So that means that um, we have to catch up very fast with, with, the, with the humanitarian side. I mean, the, the power shortages have been happening for the years now. You know, people say, what about these sanctions that the U.S.? I mean, that's the reasoning why, why Venezuela has collapsed to this degree. That's nonsense. The real sanctions happened 15 years ago. Chavez is still in the power where he said, um, we're going to put a, a, complete, a strict currency um, control. So basically, if you earn in Bolivars and you, and you need to import certain things, raw materials and things to make whatever it is that you make. Let's say you make trumpets, mm -hmm. you're a trumpet manufacturer in Venezuela. Certain alloys that you need to get come from different places. For that, you need U.S. dollars or some kind of foreign currency that is accepted mm -hmm. elsewhere. So when, what happens when you have no access to these dollars? You have to get them in the black market. But then on top of that, the, the regime also put fixed prices. So you can only sell your trumpet for this much. Even though if it costs you three times the price to make it as it did the year before, you still have to sell it this much. So that's what would how, be the purpose? Exactly. That is, that is the, that, that's why <laughs> private enterprise in Venezuela was, has been completely obliterated, destroyed by the regime. This is really a you know, social, socialist communist dictatorship uh, in yeah. disguise. And that's that that has those have been the sanctions that have destroyed the Venezuelan economy and, and and the freedoms, the economic freedoms of people to you know to be entrepreneurial and to uh, because you have a combination of, of of the fixed prices you know for a country that's a petro state that imports the majority of things you know to to um, to to make what, whatever else that is that we produce. Then you have a real problem. Food produce, production in Venezuela is mostly about was mostly about uh, for for internal consumption. We did not export food; it was for us. Yeah. But to grow this food, you need things from outside. You need there's certain things that you need to to import. I know this for a fact. I mean, my my half my family is in ranching, and you know, and okay, yeah, yeah, and, and this kind of thing. So. It, so they've been squeezed. The producers have been squeezed to to the point that you, it doesn't. It's no. It's no longer. There's there, there's no profit at all. It's 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 a eternal bleeding out loss. You know there are people who have gone on hunger strikes in Venezuela, and I'm talking during the Chavez years. There's a guy by the name Brito B R I T O. Look him up. Hunger strike. He died 
from from a hunger strike. He said, I'm not going to eat again until I get my lands back that they took from me. So things like that have been happening in Venezuela. I mean, people Gosh. talk Gandhi, Luther King, et cetera, et cetera. Look at Venezuelan or Venezuelans over the last 20 years. The number of of nonviolent protests, mobilizations, and things that we've done. I'm kind of glad that now people are realizing it. But boy, I mean, it's been happening now. Some of the marches that, that Venezuelans have organized have been some of the most massive marches in the history of human kind <laughs> yeah 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 so anyways now it's the unfolding because it's it's that's it i mean they've stolen so much from the just to give you a perspective the whole rescue package of the u.s economy back in 08 09 with the financial crisis etc well venezuela and this was i did the math a few years ago and this is be, more i think when maduro was just beginning by then, the, the influx from the oil revenues has had been something bigger than the whole rescue package of the United States economy. We're talking 300 plus million here versus 30 some million here. And I'm saying, where did that money go? Yeah, right. Where, 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 where are the new hospitals? Where are the new schools? Where, where, where's the new airports? You know, See, yeah, they yeah. stole everything. It's the biggest ransacking of a country in the history of the Western Hemisphere. And this is the thing that people are having a hard time under, uh, uh, let's say, realizing that this happened under their watch, you know, you know, the, the, and, and then the, the news didn't really cover it to the point, to the, I, I'm talking Main Street news. Sure, you know, sure. Like, I'm, yeah, talking, I mean, like, I'm talking the CNNs and the Foxes, etc. During those years, now they don't stop talking about it, obviously, because now... Uh, I mean, I, I, there is a side of me that says maybe it's because the, inter, the in, entertainment factor. Until you have dying kids, you know, with you know the, that are right. that are completely um, I mean, you know, malnourished or something. Until you see it, then people won't care. I mean, it really did feel like that. But anyways, it is what it is. And now you have people are going hungry. People are dying from things like. Diabetes, and uh, if you, if you now with the power shortages, um, now if you're on dialysis, you're gonna die. Yeah, that's what you were painted that picture that like without electricity, hospitals can't power. Yeah. They can't, you know, like the whatever drugs and things that need to be refrigerated, or if you're on any some sort of life saving measures, it's like actually life and death. You know, yeah. like losing power. It's not just an inconvenience. It's actually life and death. There's a there's there's a sadly. We're talking dozens, hundreds, thousands of videos online now of people reporting what they're going through. I mean, I'm, I mean, I saw one a couple of days ago, and I had tears in my eyes. I mean, it was a gentleman whose wife died from something that was completely curable, and he's speaking to the camera. You know, so it's like a selfie thing. It's not like a big production. It's just him right. with his phone saying, "You know, Maduro, you killed the love of my life." You know, there's this is happening as we speak. People's kids are dying in their arms. Um, in, in, in their mother's hands because they can't get basic treatment. Food is running out. Um, if you get food, then you can refrigerate it. I mean, there's videos of, 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 of tons of, of, of uh, meat that the Chavistas were keeping, you know, sort of for themselves, for the military barracks. But power went out on them too. And then all of that has rotten God. away. It's wasted food. You know, look, alcohol, I mean, my... You know, 
how do I put it? My father had to shower in the rain a week ago because you know the, the a his, week ago his his water tank ran out, and he's waiting for for water to come back. And then, but and then he's you know he's got some for hydration and stuff, and he's, you know yeah you, you have to manage it now. Yeah, and I'm talking. You can be middle class. You can be anything. I mean, it just doesn't matter. You you're going through. They they turned a, what was a very flawed. Yeah, it was the richest country in the in the continent to something now where we're like ninety plus percent uh, poverty. Yeah, seventy percent of Venezuelan kids are experiencing some degree of malnourishment some and then there's like i forgot the it's like 20 some of it it's a way too high of a percentage that are going through severe malnourishment people that are kids that are starving yeah so i'm talking mad max world seriously yeah and and then let's not even i mean that's what without even getting into the collectivos when I mean, we have these collectivos i don't know if you've seen that these are the these are terrorist groups basically these are terrorist groups they go out and terrorize people, they're shooting, target shooting people. You know, if there's any protests, they go and kill you. Then they go into neighborhoods, you know, grandma's apartment. They'll go in there and, you know, and kill the dog or do whatever it needs to, to keep people terrorized. So don't mess with us, that kind of thing. What's happening, though, is once you're really at the point of inflection, I, I would say, which is what, what's going on now, where it's complete desperation, you're almost like a zombie if you're living there. So I'm already dead, basically. So people are choosing, I mean, you have two choices. You either accept that you'll be a slave. That's what it is. I mean, Venezuela now is the largest ghetto in the Americas. The second one being Cuba, you know, that's what it is. It's a ghetto. Everybody there is, it's it's like a giant prison, right? With millions of square miles, but that's what it is. Um, And you choose, okay, I'm either going to be, let's say, enslaved in this system, this tyrannical system, or we're going to go for it, you know, whatever. I mean, there's nothing else to lose. Um, and that's what's happening, the latter. I mean, the people are are still. I mean, Venezuelans have a little bit of, like, what what you got, what you have here in, in, in the U.S. is sort of this feeling of freedom, you know. No, we're not. Yeah. We're not going to take it. And then, and then this calls for dialoguing. We've been 20 years dialoguing. We know now. I mean, we are experts at this more than anybody who's telling us, oh, you need to sit down and talk at the table. No, you don't ask the kidnapped to sit down with the kidnapper and, and, and ask them to, you know, to release themselves, you know, especially when they're not armed. We have an unarmed population versus that tyrannical group. That's crime syndicate. It's like that the is- worst case scenario for the Second Amendment argument, right? Like people saying... You know, if you take our guns in America, if you take our guns and then we are an unarmed population against, you know, a military state is, it is very possible. That. And yes, yeah. I, I have had I have had to confront certain positions that I was that I had before as a as a, as a worldwide citizen, certain things that I had that I thought about, um, for example, about arms and um about private arms. Mm-hmm. Um, that is something where I've definitely evolved in a way that I'm now I see the real reasoning of a second amendment because it is, in fact, um, there is a point where too much control of something, basically you're giving a absolute monopoly of that thing, whatever that might be. In this case, let's, we're saying arms, right? 
I'm a musician. We're not supposed to be talking about this, but I mean, I have to kind of forget about what it is I do for a living and think well, for one second, hold on. There are people that are being massacred. Yeah. This is a very slow death, too. This is the part. I mean, this is a Fidel Castro um, recipe. It's sort of, I, I call it trickle-down terrorism. It's not what you see in the Far East and other places where you see big bombs and, you know, big explosions. And there's, I call it the, the macabre entertainment factor. Nobody yeah. wants to see it, but you can't help but look at it. Right, right. Venezuela... And that regime from Chavez, Castro has done the same. They, they're they good at keeping it just under that level where everybody would go, this has to stop at this moment. You know, they've been very good at that. But I think now it's gotten out of their hands now. Thanks to technology that now you can document more things. Not to, you know, after 20 years also, you know, things, um, if, they, if, if they're going to go bad, they do. And, and this is what happened in Venezuela. Now it's almost impossible for them to to cover what's happening. So what has been happening, though, it's, it's the same thing that you see, for example, here in the U.S. with the Brexit thing. I mean, there's now you have the 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 the, the, the how would you say the kind of fake news thing? <laughs> I mean, where you don't know what's real. I mean, if if you look at let's say Venezuela, I mean, you look at you know, if you go if you do the the classical traditional googling of it, you'll get you know articles here and there, even even with big publications, you know that that will give you complete different analysis of what's going on. What I say to that to people who are trying to search for it, make sure that whatever you do, you get a Venezuelan's voice into your. Uh, uh, you know, into your list of readings. Yeah, right, right. Because otherwise, you're going to get some interpretation. I mean, well, what's yeah. happening? Well, the thing is, what's happening is that a lot of what's happening in Venezuela and, and, and to us down there is being weaponized for domestic, uh, for for domestic reasons. You know, for example, here, U.S. is pretty polarized now. I'm sure you would agree. Yeah. So you have, you know, these 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 two groups that are fighting for power and influence here. And I'm being, I'm trying to be very, very um, alert to see who is um, using the Venezuelan thing as, a, as like as, as, as a weapon for their policy, right? For their social justice, like yeah, yeah. Nonetheless, I mean, I mean, aside from that, though, like it's insane to use some sort of like mass, just like horrible situation for your own political platform. So that yeah, I mean, yeah. But I, but I'll say this, and and, and, me, me, and I, I I'm aware that many, um, in especially in my line of work, um, I would probably not um, consider even talking about these things. But the, 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 this is one where I believe that foreign policy worldwide. I mean, even because there are so many things that one can criticize the U.S. involvement in other countries in the past, and then Europe too. You know, this is one where. I think at here, as things are playing out right now, we Venezuelans feel that that, that that this is right. I mean, finally we're being he- heard. I mean, it's not just the U.S. and you know, we, I mean, the Canada's in into it too. And then there are way, I mean, yeah, Brazil, Argentina, Colombia, Peru, Chile, and then on the European side, all the major countries there are all supporting. So this is one. I mean, it's the first time where we finally feel that we're being acknowledged and also supported. 
So we'll see how that plays out. But is the, there is there optimism about that, or is it sort of like this, a little bit too late? What like what's the, the? To me, this is this is beyond this is beyond optimism or pessimism. This is this in a way it's like real war. This is where it doesn't matter. This is where. This is what needs to happen. This, I mean, basically, because this is the point where natural rights enter the equation. Natural rights meaning basically the right to live. The yeah. people in Venezuela right now, they could care less, really. And I'm talking tens of millions of people. We're talking about a country that has lost up to 15% of its whole population. Of those people who have left, we're talking some of the brightest minds of, of a country that have left. So many of them want to come back and reconstruct something. So, but what, right now, what you have there—I mean, you can't tell a mother whose kid died in her arms and might have another kid that's still living. Oh, wait, but you know, this is this is a geopolitical machination with oil, this or not, you know, and the economy and uh, and the and the far right and the far left—they could care less about that. And they, it's like human level. Like, you don't. Yeah. You 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 don't give uh, political theory discussion and dialogue discussion to somebody who is literally starving. Right. That's what I mean. You you don't go to the ghetto, right? Yeah. Uh, when it opens its gates and say, "Well, let's dialogue now." Right. That uh, it's it's a uh, it's a uh, it is unfortunately a a calamitous situation. It is complex and it's unavoidable. No matter what happens, uh, I mean, you could turn a blind eye like this, but but the reality is that you have. I mean, this is not affecting just Venezuela. I mean, if you look at Colombia, there are um, the last I read was the official number was somewhere like eight hundred thousand, but yesterday I heard that it's going up to to a million three hundred thousand of people who are across the border. From Venezuela right. to Colombia. That's just Colombia. So you have a million new people in a country who didn't want to be there to a country that's going through its own problems. It has to, you know, so they're having to attend that. You have like 500 to 800,000 people in Brazil. You have 500,000 people in, in, in Peru. So all these countries, they can't ignore it. <laughs> you cannot right. ignore right. the situation. Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, it's, it is, it is what it is. I mean, and it's a, uh, We've been calling. Uh, we, I mean, we, we've been sounding the alarms for a couple of decades now, but now it's it's it, now it's become very very evident. Well, and for the same reason, I, I think it's important for people, you know, to be open about their struggles, whether it's professionally or in your case, maybe with the cancer and, and your health, just to being open about these struggles for just general people myself included i feel like it this is as much for me as it is for anybody else just the perspective to understand what i feel like my problems are mm -hmm. in relation to what's actually happening worldwide you know mm -hmm. it's easy when you're in your own head and you're in your own box of your own life without looking outside to think that the things that are happening to you are a really big deal and you can't necessarily say in my opinion you can't necessarily say that you can't minimize how you feel, of course, but just some perspective of what's happening to other people can help you maybe even deal with it in a more healthy way. When I'm thinking to myself, oh, man, like 
there's somebody who got in a car crash on I-65 and it made me late to something. And then you're angry about that. You know, it's probably worse for the person who's in the crash. Yeah, of course. But then even that is probably not as bad as what's yeah. happening. You know what I mean? Like it's all in perspective and I'm not, you know, again, you can't minimize how you feel necessarily, but I just think it's important to, to understand like other people's struggles so that a support can finally happen, but then B you putting our own, you know, our own opinions and our own feelings sort of yeah. in line and in a perspective that's healthy for us to be able to, like, deal with them. Well, look, so I've gone through cancer. My wife is going through cancer therapy. My dad was diagnosed with that. I'm a torture victim. And all these things, you know, and other, you know, the, the more sort of day-to-day struggles. And somehow, even with all those things, I look at Venezuela right now and I feel I'm privileged. Yeah, yeah. I can, and I am. Yeah. You know, because uh, we were, I was talking about this with my wife uh, a little while ago. I said, well, look, if anybody would have to go through what we are, what we went through here, we'd be dead or one of us would be dead right, right now. I mean, right. it's, 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 uh, it's a fact. Um, cause I know, I mean, I have a friend in Venezuela who's going through, uh, chemotherapy herself and it's been done i mean the only way that she's alive is because it's been uh supported through um crowdfunding uh from 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 abroad this is the principal flutist of the venezuela symphony orchestra by the way so if anybody who wants to support her her name is maria gabriela rodriguez is her name wonderful person an educator teacher of hundreds and hundreds of, of venezuelan flutists and she's a warrior, and she's going through all this. So it's just, I mean, when I look at what she has to go through, or anybody who's got health issues, etc. I mean, here, at least we have, like, the top medical community. We have access to the best care. Over there, you, you, you might even have a good doctor looking at you in the eyes and knowing what you need to, uh, knowing what, what you need to get to get better. And this person has to go through... The, the, this process of telling you, I'm sorry, this is what you need. I can't give it to you yeah. because it's not available in this country. I mean, it's also, it's, it's, it's bad for the patient, but the doctors there, I mean, I don't know how you, I mean, for me, like the top heroes nowadays are doctors who are serving in Venezuela and having to deal with people. Now they're, they're almost now more shrinks psychologists because that's mostly like well, i mean they're basically giving death sentences to some yeah, people right that sentence trying yeah. to make it as manageable as possible they're having to improvise the care that they give i mean it's it's i mean again yeah, it's uh yeah. like i say it's uh it's like out of a dystopian yeah, seriously film I, you can't imagine this stuff i mean this is stuff that goes beyond imagination and is happening and we're talking life. extreme circumstances too that's not just let alone probably the danger of just existing in Venezuela. Well, there's the crime rate. Right. But, I mean, when I was there, um, and we're talking over a decade now, the Caracas, for example, was already the murder capital. Um, yeah, I saw uh, a figure that's it's like 21 people every day or something, something like, like that. that. Yes. Yeah. And then you have uh, kidnappings. I mean, I mean, I was kidnapped by the National Guard, but you have the the kidnap for ransom. Um, uh, this, this, this in Venezuela, it's so common I, I lost count of how many family members have been kidnapped um and so how many people do you know that that know that <laughs> i so know approximately zero whereas in venezuela now it's not i mean you know that every anybody who's a venezuelan 
if if we had Venezuelans sitting here, the you know 99% of them would have some sort of story, whether it's them or a family member or a close friend, someone who's gone through that. You know, I have friends who've been murdered. You know, yeah. I have uncles who died while they were being kidnapped for ransom. Think th- things like that. So, uh, Venezuelans, we've 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 had to learn to sort of coexist with people who are not aware of these things. But I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah but also, I don't want to be bringing this to every conversation. I mean, well, hopefully, no, I don't do that. But... You know, hey, Ryan, how's it going? How's your coffee? Okay, we're gonna play. Uh, Beethoven today. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, oh, before you hear, we get to that, did you, hear, did you hear about that kid who just, you know, starved to death? You know, so it, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's, it, it, it is. I mean, trust me on this one. Any, any Venezuelan that you see anywhere, no matter how happy they look at, somewhere in the back of their mind, they're having to cope and deal and and strategize on how to get their family members out or how to get stuff to them. I mean, So I there's have, just a level of that's happening. That is happening. So no matter what else they have to deal with, I that's call it my fourth cancer. I mean, wow. so there's my thing. There's what happened to my wife. There's uh, my dad's thing. You know, there's all these you know, health things. This is the other one. This is the other one that just, you just can't avoid it. It yeah. is what it is. It's, and it's not going to go away. You can't wish it away. Um, and uh, I think... With regards to the international community, now it's becoming uh, apparent, and it's I think it's evident now to to everybody that it's not going to go away. You can't wish it away. This yeah. is one. This is one that will only be solved. And of that, Venezuelans are absolutely sure. This cannot be solved without outside intervention. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean a whole army? You know, like like the the, the invasion of Normandy, <laughs> or does I mean was is, is is or is it something like in the former Yugoslavia? Is this more like a like a peace corps type of thing? It'll be a combination, and but but really, what what, what we say, it has something has to happen. Right. We have to start somewhere, and there might be you know missteps here and there, but that needs to happen. Otherwise, you're going to see. A major country in our hemisphere, um, I mean, it's already happened, really. I mean, it's not that it's going to happen. It's it's just, do you want a permanent presence of this, you know, of, of this Mordor in the Americas? Because that's what it is. Well, it just, I imagine it'll just get to a point where, like, it's just we'll never be able to recover, I assume, right? Like, if it just... We're, we're assuming it's very, very bad, but it's either going to get better or it's going to get worse, right? It's probably not going to stay where it is. Well, it's not going to stay where it is. Yeah. I, 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 I don't see that happening. I mean, there's – without it, – it, it's, it's, it's so bad now that it's not even something that you can it, – it goes even beyond the human element. I mean, people talk about the, the environmental – impact of of industrialized nations you know the you know climate change and all these things mm-hmm. i mean look at the what's happening to the environment in venezuela the the complete destruction of 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 um ecosystems and i mean it's a petro state whether you like oil or not and you know fossil fuels i mean let's let's not get into that but the fact is you know for a fact whether you like it or not you know that Dealing with fossil fuels is a tricky business. And, and there's a 
uh, there's a risk element and you have to be so careful because then, you know, you can get the, the uh, Exxon Valdez type of, you know, the, the oil spills sure, and that. Right, right. We have had oil spills that have not been reported. We know about it. It's, it was reported, I mean, locally, but not nation uh, worldwide. I don't understand that part. I, that's one of the things that baffles me. Why don't people talk about the the destruction? I mean, there's whole rivers. I mean, there was an oil spill when I was still live, living there, the eastern side of the country. The, the whole river is dead now. It's, it looks like a black oil river now. The Maracaibo Lake completely destroyed. I mean, we're talking about a... a, a, a an oil industry that was ransacked and destroyed. And then also where all the top mines and all the people that were running it were fired for political reasons. 20,000 people were fired by Chavez um, in one day. Has a lot of this these this ecosystem destruction happened since Chavez? Was it like okay before that? And or was since it, Chavez? Yeah. Yes. So before that, because I know oil is how all of basically Venezuela became this like yeah. basically Glenn described it as a paradise. Yeah. And then so since then, that's when all of these like spills and all of the destruction has happened since that. So it's like literally that regime just annihilated the country. Yeah. Well, because they were ransacking the country, so the, so whatever. The, the power outages are a good example of this. Why are they happening? Because all the investment that had to take place for Venezuelan infrastructure, a growing population, you know, and then old, older equipment that needs to be replaced and that needs to be, you know, and then needs to be updated, upgraded, et cetera, et cetera. Any funds that would go towards that, the Chavistas were pocketing in their own, you know, and they were sending that to, to Swiss accounts and offshores, etc. They were basically ransacking the country, literally. I mean, that's what they did. Any money that was going to be used for that, they would keep it for themselves. And now you see their sons and daughters, you know, the kids, the Chavista kids, we call them uh, uh, Boliburgues, it's like Boli, Bolivariano, it's like the Bolivarian revolution, and, and Burgues is a bourgeois. So we mm. you, you put the two words together. So it's a boli bourgeois kind of thing. Uh-huh. I mean, that's a, like a new generation of these uh, of these kids and and people who benefited uh, from from the Venezuelan crisis um, and are now living the most grotesque, lavish styles. I mean, we're I don't talking. Even, can't even imagine how you could live with yourself. Well, I, me neither. Um, and they're. I mean, we're talking people with. You know, multiple penthouses all over, and and you know they're involved in like 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 Formula One racing and this. I mean, it's 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 really they're just like separated. It's from disgusting. Actually- I mean, it's disgusting. I can't believe that some people would fall that low, but we do have that. Um, but now, uh, that I mean, those were actually many of the sanctions that the U.S. imposed on they, they imposed. This is even from the Obama years. They started to impose on on these sanctions on these people so that. Um, this money would be eventually returned. Um, so that's what's happening. I mean, yeah. basically, the, the, the whole infrastructure... <laughs> so that's it. <laughs> uh, the, the, but all the infrastructure of a country has uh, has fallen apart. All the safety net... I mean, I mean, if you're, if, you're, if you're in a pension, for example, I mean, the senior citizens, poor people, I mean, if, if you're in a pension right now, what was already a meager amount back then, but the, you could at least... You know, if you had your own home, you know, if you had that with that, you could at least eat and cover your basic uh, necessities. But now, now it's it's basically, I mean, I mean, it's, 
I mean, you you could burn that money, and it's 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 um it's worth nothing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm incredibly sorry that that is. I mean, again, like you said, that's that's something you bring to the table that often. Other than your social media presence, I see it there, but. Yeah. You know, to know that you're dealing with that on a regular basis all the time and that all Venezuelans, I'm just, uh, I, I'm sorry. I know it's not like my fault, but I just feel yeah. bad that, uh, that that's a thing you have to deal with. And Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And then that's, yeah. that's uh, a, a big thing that I've learned is to, um, you know, the people who are going through bad situations, I mean, I, I am, th- it, it, it is a great comfort to feel that people are now, attuned tuned in to the what's yeah, happening right um if there's something that i would i mean because i i do get this question what can we do what can we do what do we do about this from my, i mean i mean i feel so bad but i don't know what to do about it you yeah, know right that, to that um to those people i would say well two things uh, there are two very very uh, two things that i think are simple enough because everybody's going through their own problems i mean I, I i i see that that's why i say i have to work on, on sort of on two frequencies i can't expect everybody to be oh my god venezuela is destroying itself and then there you know people i mean you do have to live your life you have your own kids to to deal with etc so sure, sure yeah yeah but things two things that i believe are um I'm going to say three things. Three things that one can do if you're from abroad and looking at this. Well, number one, just a simple note or letter or something to your representatives uh, would be a, 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 a good thing, um, I think, to make sure that their own citizens are paying attention to what's happening abroad. Um, number two, the, the smallest contribution, everything right now, it's, it's worth gold. Um, because we're talking about a country that is in complete despair. So there are a number of organizations, and I, I do share them from time to time on my social media. And um, I'll get those from Carlos and put them in the blog post yeah. that I'll make about this. So all yeah. of it will be put So, right so there, there are a number of, of, of NGOs and different kind of uh, organizations that are very legit, you know, and that are, and that are um, working on, on the humanitarian part. On, I mean, there, there, some of them... It depends on what, where you choose to allocate the resources you want to allocate. But even you know, even a ten dollar donation or something like that, you know, anything will be used for good here. So there are a number of, of funding initiatives that I think are worth looking at, and that's another way to help. And the third one, which is um, less material, but not, you know, it's, it's also very, I think, very very. Uh, I, I, from my end, I've, I've found it to be very meaningful. It's just engaging with a Venezuelan. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking. I, mean, I I appreciate the fact, and I do say I I thank you for asking me about this and for at least wanting to know about it. Yeah, there's uh, one of the worst things about people who are who are kidnapped, who are or or, or people who are in this desperation of and there are different levels of desperation the worst thing is to feel that you don't exist to the world that is a horrible feeling and uh so so to engage with the venezuelan i mean there are, like i said 15 percent of the population has left some of the most heated debates that i've had with people who are sort of um claiming that what what that we're saying is is untrue it's like well you know i don't want to debate you and then i'll i'll, I'll look up where, where where do you live yeah you live here you live there you live in portland you live in wherever chicago and then i'll look for the 
the Venezuelan groups in that region, you know. So so there was I was definitely uh, recently debating with someone with uh, so who's living in Portland, Oregon, who thinks that this is all a worldwide conspiracy, blah blah blah. Oh my and gosh. It, you know, <laughs> That there are all only uh, this is all Come about the Vene- this is all about the Venezuelan oil oh. and that this is then this is a sham that the, 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 you know so I basically told this person I can't talk to you anymore I'm wasting my time but but respectfully and I looked up go talk to the Ven- I mean and I looked up Venezuelans in Portland you know that I mean and they're obviously I know for a fact that anywhere I look if there if there's like a civilized so uh, you know city or society whatever. There's going to be Venezuelans there because yeah. you have three plus million people who've left. And I found it. I said, go talk to them um, and, you know, and, and ask them questions. And then they'll tell you because everybody has their own personal stories now. Like I said, or like where is a kidnapped person or somebody who lost their business or someone who couldn't afford to buy their, 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 their kid, their medicine or their parents. You know, so that's, that's the third part, what I would say. Engage with a Venezuelan if you can and you'll see. I mean, we're, we're not that bad. Well, and it's interesting. I don't know if you know who Brene Brown is, but she's a uh, she's a researcher who's spoken. She's researched vulnerability and mm-hmm. the power of vulnerability, and she's spoken with many people who've had just like incredible hardships in their life. And she's done this for you know fifteen plus years, and so she's compiled her work into books and various lectures. And she basically says people are hard to hate up close move in and it's basically exactly what you're saying I if you don't under- more. if you don't understand a person's viewpoint the best thing to do would be to find a way to respectfully yeah. do it except for in this case there's no real discussion here right it's just informing people that there's this thing happening so yeah. that they so that it becomes more uh, cuz awareness is at probably at this point the the biggest weapon yeah. for you guys is just yeah. people understanding people knowing that yeah. this is happening yeah, yeah. and we become uh, quite good. I mean, I, I feel that every Venezuelan now has a a sort of de facto street level earned uh, PhD in political science because we've been going right. through this. I imagine, the, yeah. you know, we've been we're very good at detecting. Uh, let's see, phony messages <laughs> in, in 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 media or coming from politicians, etc. Because we've We've been betrayed so much now, yeah. uh, on so many levels, and even before Chavez. So it's like something now. Now we have, I think, uh, uh, there, there, there's an acquired wisdom. There sure, of with, course. I mean, that's how. With, unfortunately, with this, and I, I, there's something you said that I really like. This, this, that you can't hate somebody face to face that easily. Yeah, I could not agree more with this. I mean, there is. Uh, this is why I do engage here and there sometimes with the in the Twitter sphere, but only to a certain degree because I I, I do feel that the, the the sort of silos that one sees now where people are just super angry, but you know then I, then I think, but well, you're just sitting in your couch, you know. Right. And, uh, uh, there's a part of me that says, you know, this there's something that is not real about this conversation. There's something missing. That degrades the conversation because if I know for a fact that if we were sitting next to each, I mean, face to face, it would be a different conversation. It probably. would be a different conversation, and you wouldn't be so quick at uh, you know insulting. Sure, or, sure. Or, There's or, some or discrediting. Yeah, there, yeah, exactly. And this is the thing with the you know with social media. There, um, 
which sometimes is actually anti-social media. And it's the fact that, you know, I mean, when you're in front of someone, you can say, you know what, I'm leaving, you know, and you leave. But in, with here, you just block them. That's right, it. Right. Just you're pretend that they don't exist. Oh, my problem is not there anymore. Well, and kind of like I was saying um, with, I just, I had it and then I lost it. So you should keep going. Maybe I'll, <laughs> maybe it'll come back to me. I'm sorry. Um, and says, um... I'm going to leave this in here. I'm going to, we're going to find out how long it's going to take me to find this. Um, <laughs> I don't I, even know don't, where we were. <laughs> I don't even remember. Man, I, I had it. It was going to be like the most incredible statement ever. Everybody was going to say, I have, I just learned so much and I just can't remember it. So maybe I'll think of it, but probably not. Um, I, if it's cool with you, I feel like that's as good of a place to yeah, we've yeah, encapsulated absolutely. it. I'm sure we could continue going, but yeah. um, I, I think we've covered it. That concludes part two of the series with Carlos Izkaray. He gave me so much material that there's actually going to be a part three where we talk about what he thinks the orchestra's role in a culture and in a community can be. It's a very, very wonderful episode. I just thought it would be better to split it up into another episode. So I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode. I want to thank Carlos for coming on and talking to me and giving of so much of his time. And I want to thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time. Thank you.